0: Alright, do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good. Revelation chapter 9 is where you need to turn. Revelation chapter 9. Last week we made transition in our study of Revelation from the seven seals to the seven trumpets by looking at the seventh seal and the first four trumpets. I told you that I think that the seals, the trumpets and the bowls are basically repetitious retellings of the same things from different perspectives using different imagery, all for the sake of emphasis. There are other schools of thought on this, but this is the one that I think holds the most water. Regardless of where you stand on this, though, it is important to remember that this is apocalyptic prophecy. So there's some fluidity to the timeline, and there's an extremely high usage of symbolic and figurative language. Maybe to say it another way, and this may be helpful to you, is that this, what we are studying in Revelation, is more like poetry than it is like narrative as we interpret it and understand it. It's better to approach it with like a poetic frame of mind than like you would Exodus or Luke. That may be helpful as we understand this. Last week we saw four main applications from the text. Number one, to pray. We are called to pray in this text and we see the effectiveness of the prayers of the people of God in the text last week. Specifically, there was an encouragement to pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would vindicate his people and restore the creation to its intended state. And that is our ultimate hope, right? This is what we should be pursuing in prayer, is the culmination of it all at the return of the Lord Jesus. A lady named Megan Hill um, wrote an article that I shared the entirety of on Wednesday night at prayer meeting. I'll give you one excerpt from it that I think may be helpful uh, for our connection with Revelation last week. She said, Talking about prayer, we are surrounded by a prevailing godlessness that believes that our great hope rests in technology or medicine or money or human resourcefulness. But when we pray together, we testify and remind one another that our hope comes from somewhere else entirely. We are not wringing our hands desperate for human solutions. We are praying people. Let it be so. Let it be so among us, I pray. Number one, the lesson was about prayer. Number two, there was a lesson about repentance. The design of all of this trouble that we're seeing in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls is to bring about repentance. And we know that God often uses suffering, in the words of Joe, to rattle people's cages. To wake them up and bring them to repentance. And we hear that often as people give their personal testimony. They will talk about a time of great suffering that woke them up to their sinfulness and God's holiness and their need for a savior. And God used that to bring them to himself in, in faith and repentance. We even hear that in entire communities uh, around the globe and even here in the United States. A time of great suffering brings people to repentance and closeness to God. And that is the design of the suffering that we see in the, in the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. So there was a call to repentance there was also, as often there is in Revelation, a call to perseverance. We saw in the text last week that we are sealed by God. We are his. And therefore, though there is a prospect of suffering that we would experience, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because we have hope that is beyond this world that helps us get through the pain of this world, right? We are able, as we sang a minute ago, to do like Jesus and look past the present suffering to the purpose, to the ultimate fulfillment of it all. So we endure with faith. And then finally, we saw that there is a lesson to preach. As that eagle flew around and said, whoa, 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 that should motivate us to preach the good news, to preach the hope of deliverance. The week before, we saw that we should have confidence as we preach the gospel to the nations, knowing that men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be there. That gives us great confidence as we go and preach. Well, the text last week gave us a great sense of urgency to go and preach, that the coming judgment is coming. And we need to preach the hope of the gospel before that day comes, or even as that day comes, that men and women and boys and girls would repent and trust in Jesus, because the only escape is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So that's what we saw last week. This week, we're going to move on to the next trumpet, but we're going to slow down a bit. We've been moving pretty quickly, and I have told several people that my approach to preaching revelation is different than my normal approach to preaching a text. Normally, when I'm faced with the decision to cover either more text or less text in any given week, I choose less text so that we can look at it more closely. But in Revelation, I want to lean more toward the more side of things. I want to cover more text for a couple of reasons. First, I have a great desire to finish this. Um, I really, really do. Like this is not easy stuff that we're dealing with. And so to speed along and be done um, is is a good thing. But more than that, we're going to slow down today or or we're generally going to speed up because I, I think that we're supposed to see apocalyptic prophecy from a high altitude, like we can get lo- if we look too closely at revelation we can get lost in some of the details and miss the bigger point the bigger picture so that's why we're flying at a pretty high altitude but today today there is there are some clues in the text that we should slow down and look at chapter 9 more closely or at least let it sit on us for a little longer for example trumpets 5 and 6 that we're going to see uh, revealed in chapter 9 use twice as many words to be described as trumpets one through four combined. All right, so the last couple of trumpets that we're going to look at take twice as much ink as the first four combined. That's significant. and teaches us that we should slow down. Plus, the introduction of the eagle at the end of the text last week clues us in that there's a major escalation happening in the text this week. So speaking of that eagle, I want to give you something to talk about at lunch today. I want at lunch today for you to discuss and ponder together the connection between the holy, holy, holy that the living creatures sing as they fly around the throne. They say, holy, 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 and the eagle as he says, whoa, woe, woe. I think there's a really interesting connection there that I want you guys to think about. I don't want to give it away, uh, but it'll be fun for you to talk about. But for now, let's slow down and let's consider together today the fifth trumpet. Look at it in chapter 9. Verses 1 through 12. That's what we'll cover today. This is what God's word says. Then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth and power was given them as scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. Of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tail is their power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them. The angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Verse 12 says, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we trust that your word will accomplish its purpose in our lives today. You have promised that when it goes out, it does not come back empty without accomplishing your purpose. So we submit ourselves to it today, and we submit ourselves with gladness may your word encourage us where we need encouragement as your people who have been sealed on our foreheads by you. May it strengthen our resolve to persevere and endure through trials and tribulations. May it ignite our desire to be bold witnesses to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it strike terror in the hearts of those who do not know you, who do not bear your seal, who have rejected Jesus Christ. Father, may it do... That even to those in this room who are spiritual outsiders, so that they are brought to repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you will do all of this, not because we deserve it, not be, not just because we will benefit from it, but we pray that you do these things for the glory of your great name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so look at verse one. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth the key of, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So like usual in Revelation, right off the bat, we dive into hotly debated waters. What, or better yet, who is this star that falls from heaven at the sound of the fifth trumpet? Well, most scholars agree that this is a reference to an angel. And that's as far as the agreement goes. Most scholars will say this is an angel, but beyond that, they will argue at length. Some immediately assume that this is Satan a fallen angel, the leader of fallen angels. And they think this because of the references elsewhere in Scripture to his being cast out of heaven upon rebelling against God. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Um, So people think of Satan immediately here. They also think of him because of the connection of the bottomless pit between Satan and the pit all throughout Revelation. You're going to see a conjunction there um, throughout Revelation. People also think it's Satan because of another mention later on in this text of the leader of the locusts and the pit later on you're going to see an appearance of this king of the locusts so some people immediately think it's satan others say that it doesn't really fit for this to be satan and that's because this angel is simply doing the bidding of the lord here in the unfolding of the fifth trumpet in fact this angel's role seems to be like the other angels who are blowing the trumpets It seems like as they blow the trumpets, that that unleashes the next step of whatever's going to happen. And this seems to fit with that where he goes and unlocks the pit and something happens. So it seems to be parallel to that. There's also a good argument that it's not Satan, but rather maybe even a good angel who is simply doing the bidding of God because of chapter 20, verse 1. I want you to look at this on the screen. So this is Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Very similar language, and it cannot be Satan here. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So I think, I think that's a pretty good argument that this angel that, that comes and unlocks the pit probably cannot be Satan because it's certainly not Satan in chapter 20. So I'd probably fall into that second camp if I was pressed, but that's not what's really important here. Let's focus here on the fact that this star from heaven only has the key to the pit because it was given to him. And in Revelation, that sense of he received it implies that God gave it. right, there's a lot of that in Revelation. It doesn't give a, a direct connection to who gave it, just that someone received something. But the implication every time is that it was received from the Lord, that it was given by the Lord to the angel. So he only has this key because the Lord gave it to him. Bottom line is what happens as the pit is opened only happens because the Lord allows it. He's the one who gave the key. He's the one who is in charge. And that idea is simultaneously settling and unsettling. Right When when we think about all this happening only because the Lord allows it, that can settle our hearts in some ways because we know the Lord. We know the one who is in charge and how he works all things for his glory and for our good. We see it over and over and over again so we can trust him. But it is also unsettling because it creates this intellectual tension about evil in general. The expository commentary sums it up pretty well when it says the biblical portrait of evil is complex for God rules over evil without being morally blameworthy while Satan is counted guilty for his motives and actions. So that, that, that whole idea of God ruling even, even over the evil actions of men is at the same time settling and unsettling and produces this tension that we just have to live in and accept. The bottom line though in verse one is this, What happens as the pit is opened only happens because the Lord allows it. He gave the key. He is in charge. So let's look at what happens. Look at verse two, three, and four. It says, he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth and power was given them as the scorpion of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth or any green thing, Or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. There's a lot going on here. First, I want to think about this idea of the smoke rising up. I think it's really interesting. And in biblical literature, especially apocalyptic literature, smoke is a symbol of judgment and wrath. And even this idea of the sun and the air being darkened, those are more images that are associated with judgments throughout the Bible. Especially in apocalyptic literature. So that's part of what's going on here. But in a practical sense, if you or I see smoke rising up like this, we are immediately signaled that something big has gone on or is going on. Usually that something terrible has happened or is happening, right? You've probably experienced this yourself. You're driving home from work or from school or someplace else, and you see a massive column of smoke rising up from your neighborhood. And you immediately assume that it is your house that is on fire. Or worse than that, you know that it is your house that is on fire. Now there's a difference between smoke that goes up from a cooking fire or out of a chimney and smoke that goes up because a house is on fire or because a bomb has been dropped or something like that. And this picture seems to be more like the latter than the former. It seems to be like there, there is enough smoke going up that everyone's attention is immediately drawn to it and knows that something bad has happened. And it gets worse because as John looks at the smoke, the trouble comes out of the smoke, spreading far and wide over the earth. He describes what he sees as locusts. Now we here in America, especially in Southern Illinois, don't have much appreciation for the destruction that locusts can bring. But rest assured, John's original audience... Sure did. And people even in that area of the world still do to this day. Not to mention that biblically speaking, plagues of locusts are seen several times in the Old Testament as instruments of judgment from God because of his people's rebellion against him. Locusts might not strike fear into our hearts, but they would have struck fears into the hearts of John's original audience. You might hear locusts and think, well, what's the big deal about a bunch of grasshoppers? But if grasshoppers flood your fields and eat everything in sight, you would be afraid of them. Three things I want us to see before we move on from this particular section. Well, before we get to that, though, there, there's this, also this link to the scorpions. And again, scorpions are not something that we're familiar with around here. <clears throat> I've never seen a scorpion out in the woods in southern Illinois. Uh, but I did go on a trip one time in the Grand Canyon, uh, rafting and camping down in the, in the canyon, and uh, the guys who were in charge of that trip said, every night before you get in your sleeping bag, you need to check for scorpions. And uh, they were these scorpions that you couldn't hardly see because they were the exact same color as the sand, but they lit up under a black light. It was the craziest thing. So they had a bunch of flashlights that were black lights, and they would shine them around the campsite. And every once in a while, you would see this, like, glowing scorpion, and it was terrifying. Like, scorpions are scary enough, even worse when they glow in the dark, right? Right. We're not familiar with that, but John's audience would have been. This would have been bad news of pain and destruction. It would have been bad news of pain and destruction. Three things, though, before we move on. Number one, notice in the text that the power they have was given to them. Again, this emphasizes the sovereignty of God over everything that's going on here. These, these locusts that have power like a scorpion are not running loose They are not off the leash. They are not in the wild. God is in control of them. And friends, evil is never running wild. God is always on his throne. He is always in control. Remember that. Second thing, these scorpions, I mean, these locusts are told not to harm the plants. That seems to indicate that this is not a reference to literal locusts. For literal locusts only eat plants. They only eat green things. And these locusts are expressly told not to touch the grass, not to touch anything that is green. So therefore, I believe that what John is seeing here is not a physical plague of a literal bug, but rather a symbolic description of a demonic invasion. Not a a literal bug that brings a plague, but a symbolic description of a demonic invasion. In other words, these are not locusts, They are demons who are going to bring the torment. And that makes sense with the rest of the imagery. Third, this is huge. The sealed of God are protected in the midst of this. He says to the locusts, you you torment all these men except the ones who have the seal of the living God on their foreheads. You You don't get to mess with them. You torment the rest of them, but you don't mess with them. Here, I want to double down on my position from a few weeks ago. That the 144,000 who were sealed on their foreheads are symbolic of the entire people of God who have been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I want you to see that the people of God who have the seal of God, the living God on their foreheads, are here for this as this takes place. But they are marked out as different from the rest of the world. And friends, this is a great promise. This is a great promise that as in the plagues of the Exodus... The people of God will be spared from the destruction and torment brought by these demon locusts. That doesn't mean they're spared from all suffering during this time, but these demon locusts don't get to touch the people of God. There is a distinction throughout Revelation between those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers that we mentioned at the end of last week, and the people of God. There's a distinction. There seem to be two groups of people throughout Revelation the earth dwellers, who ultimately have the seal of the beast, the mark of the beast on their lives. And there are the people of God who have the seal of the living God on their foreheads. And there's a distinction throughout Revelation of these two groups. So there are two implications of this. Number one, we, the people of God, are here for this suffering. But two, we do not suffer the wrath of God. These demons are, are, are bringing the wrath of God on the people who are opposed to God. We don't suffer the wrath of God, but we will suffer. And we'll see later on in Revelation that we will suffer at the hands of the beast, And his followers. But there's a question that all of this begs when we talk about the distinction between the people of God and the people of the world, those who have the seal of God on their forehead. And the question is a simple one Are you one of his people? Do you have the seal of the living God on your forehead? Do you bear that seal? Same way to ask the question, another way to ask the same question is Are you trusting in Christ? Are you one of the people of God by faith alone? In Christ alone. If you're not, that can change today. Like everyone who is a, a child of God, one time was not. No one comes out of the womb a child of God. We come to him by grace through faith in Christ. Every one of us who had the seal of God on our foreheads at one point did not. So if that's where you are today, I want to I talk to you about hope. Hope that you can repent of your sins and trust in Christ And become one of his people. Have the seal of the living God on your forehead. Look at verse 5. It says, And they were not permitted to kill anyone, these locusts, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of the scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. This is interesting, right? And it speaks a great deal about the limits of the torment of these demon locusts. They cannot kill. They can only torment. They cannot kill. And that's part of the link of the scorpion. Scorpions don't generally kill people. They make your life miserable if they sting you, but they don't generally kill you. They cannot kill. Death will come later, actually, next week. Secondly, it's limited because their their torment only lasts for five months. Five months is a normal span in a life for a literal locust. But here, it implies a definite period of time, not an everlasting period of time. They get to cause their trouble for five months. And then something else is going to happen. And it's actually going to be worse next week. What we see here is that God is limiting their work in his mercy. God is limiting the work of these demon locusts as an act of mercy. These five months of agony are an opportunity for people to repent. These five months of agony should cause people to wake up and repent. If I am right about these locusts being demons... What we're going to see later on next week is there is great irony here because later in chapter 9 you see that the very things that these earth dwellers are worshiping, that is demons, are the very things that are tormenting them here and yet they don't repent of their demon worship. You're going to see that next week. It's just the craziest thing that these demons that they worship are now inflicting great pain on them to the point that they want to die but they don't repent of their demon worship. Don't be like them. Repent today. And find hope in Christ. This business of seeking death but not finding it. Is intended to ratchet up our understanding. And our reaction to the depth of the suffering that these demon locusts bring. It will be so bad that people will want to die. Rather than face another day. But they won't die. They will face another day. For five months this kind of agony goes on. We see a similar concept in Revelation chapter 6. At the end, uh, Joe, Joe preached this while I was gone one week. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? They basically say, we want to die rather than face the lamb. Similar idea in Revelation chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 8 speaks similarly When it says, and death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family. That remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Jesus speaks to this idea in Luke chapter 23. Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. They would rather die than face another day. And that's the picture here. As these demon locusts inflict their agony, people would rather die. I want you to understand that though they are limited, though these demons are limited in what they can do, their reign is terrible. The the trauma that they bring to people is absolutely terrible. And if you didn't think it was terrible before, you read the description of these these things in verse 7. Read it with me. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is power to hurt men for five months." You should read some of the material about this section and the wild speculations about what modern or not so modern military machine is the fulfillment of this. And while that may be what is going on here, I think the language in these verses teaches us not to think concretely about this, not to think literalistically about these things. Just notice how often the word like is used here. They, they were like this and like that and like such and such. He's not giving a direct description of them, but rather describing what they are like. And notice how unrelated the things that he likens them to are. He talks about they're like locusts, they're like horses, they're like crowns, they're like men's faces but women's hair, they're like lion's teeth and scorpion's tails. These things that he uses to describe them are completely unrelated. And notice that a lot of this is Old Testament paint especially from Joel chapter 2. I'd encourage you to check out Joel chapter 2 on your own time this afternoon and see this same kind of language used there. And it's reminiscent also of the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10. So what is going on here? What is going on here in the description of these locust demons? I think basically that John is describing the most terrible and terrifying thing he could possibly imagine. By piling image upon image so that we are left absolutely overwhelmed and completely frightened by these things. Like, he takes the scariest things he can imagine. And some of you are like, well, women's hair is not so scary. Yeah, it is. Especially from a biblical perspective and the seduction of the woman with the long hair. Like, we read about this in Proverbs of come here, come here, and this enticing seduction, right? Or you may say, men's faces are not so scary. I beg to differ. Like, I've seen my face a few times, and it's scary, right? All of these things are terrifying, and he just lumps them all together and so describes the most terrifying thing you can imagine. The ESV study Bible says it like this. These images show demons to be powerful, swift, intelligent, fierce, and capable of inflicting intense mental and spiritual torment intense mental and spiritual torment if these are demons if i'm right about this and these are demons we know a little bit of what demons can do to people because we've read the new testament in particular right we know a little bit of what demons can do to people and it is terrible right think about some of the stories you're familiar with in the in the new testament in the gospels and in acts think about people who are possessed or oppressed by demons in the new testament sometimes they have seizures and are thrown into the fire or the water in an attempt to destroy them, right? Sometimes they cannot speak or see or hear. Sometimes they go absolutely berserk, they cut themselves, they run around naked in the graveyard, they howl at the moon, and they cannot be constrained by any iron chains. Sometimes they betray their best friends unto death. Think about Judas Iscariot. Satan entered into him, and he went out. Can you imagine what a large-scale demonic attack would look like? Demons tormenting all kinds of people all over the place for five months. Large-scale demonic attack would be worse than anything we can imagine coming from a military. And I think that's what's going on here. Craig Keener says it like this. The visionary imagery is intended to evoke images of terror more than to convey an exact literal portrait of the threat's appearance. Be overwhelmed by what you see here. Don't try to draw a picture of it. Don't try to say, oh, it's the Apache helicopter, or it's this helicopter that we used in in Vietnam where we spread some kind of gas out the tail uh, of this helicopter. Don't, Don't think along those lines. It's worse than that, worse than you could ever imagine, and it's intended to shake people up and get their attention. Look at verse 11, it gets worse. It says they have as a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name is in Hebrew, Abaddon, and the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. I believe this is a reference to Satan. I don't think he's the one that comes down and unlocks the pit. I think he's one that gets released out of the pit. Most likely a reference to Satan. Satan is constantly linked to the abyss. He's also linked to this destruction. That's what Abaddon and Apollyon mean. They basically mean destruction. And I think this reinforces the position that these are demons. Demons obviously have a hierarchy, with Satan at the top of the flowchart. But let's remember that Satan is not at the top of the ultimate flowchart, right? He's at the top of the demonic flowchart, but he is under authority, absolutely. Danny Aiken says The great reformer Martin Luther is credited with saying the devil is still God's devil. His point is that clearly Satan is both evil and powerful but he is still under the authority of the sovereign Lord. This last line is so good. There is only one sovereign God and the devil is not that God. He may be king over his demonic little buddies as Bud Logoman would say, but he is not the king overall. Remember what Aiken says, there is only one sovereign God and the devil is not that God. Look at verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. This blows my mind. Because what we have seen today is absolutely overwhelming. And yet the, the, the summary statement at the end is, more coming. This is just the first woe. Two more are coming. It's going to get worse than this. When it comes to the finer details of what we've shared today, I might be wrong. I might be wrong about these locusts being demons. I might be wrong. I want to agree with the scholar who says, certainty is impossible here. But friends, what I am certain of is this. Trouble is coming, and we must seek refuge. We must find hope. And that hope and that refuge is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must, however we understand this, we must look to Christ. We must trust in Christ. He is the only hope for anyone. It is the people of the living God who have the seal of the living God on their foreheads who are spared from this trouble, who are given faith to endure this trouble. Craig Keener says this. This is good. He says, Passages like the fifth and sixth trumpets in this chapter usually will not comfort the bereaved or the lonely, but they are useful for shaking us from our complacency. They provide a reality check, denouncing our fantasies that life will always continue as normal and summoning us to recognize the terrible suffering of the world around us. That's a good word. This, this passage, Revelation chapter 9, it, it doesn't make us feel good. It doesn't make us feel good. It shakes us up and teaches us that we've got to find hope outside of this world. And it's only found in Christ. So there are three questions for application today. Number one, are you sealed by God? It is only those who have the sealed the living God on their forehead that these demons cannot touch. It is only those who are sealed with the living God's seal on their foreheads that will endure it's only those who are saved in the end. Is that you? Is that you? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? Are you repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ? Have you been saved? That's the question of the day. And that's the only question that really matters, right? When we think about revelation, like if you just want to dumb down revelation, that's the question. Are, are you, do you belong to God or not? And I hope you do. And if you don't, today's the day. Today is the day. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Pastor Joe, Pastor Dylan, or myself would love to talk to you about that in a minute. Are you sealed by God? That's question number one. Are you living for him? That's question number two. Are you living for him? If you would say, yes, I'm I'm one of his. I've been sealed. I've walked the aisle and I prayed the prayer. I want to ask a follow-up question. Are you living for him? One scholar says, Christians flirting with compromise with the world should think twice. Because the entire social order is going to be destroyed in the awful catastrophes of war. Christ alone is adequate security. I think there are a lot of people that get together in rooms like this, in America especially, who would give a quick yes to that first question. Are you sealed by God? Absolutely I am. Are you living for Him? I don't think I need to. I'm not too interested in that. Don't talk to me about that. Oh, man. I think there is great encouragement that comes to being able to say yes to both of the questions. Have you been sealed by God and are you living for him? I kind of think they're the same question actually. Are you sealed by God? Are you living for him? And the third question I really don't have a ton to say about is, are you ready? Are you ready for this? Are you walking closely with the Lord Jesus so that if the smoke goes up from the pit this afternoon and the demon locusts come, cause trouble all over the earth. Are you ready to walk with Jesus through that? Are you ready for this? A lot of that has to do with how you're living right now, how you're walking with Jesus right now. Don't, Don't think that if that day comes that you will suddenly walk closely with Jesus. Let's walk closely with Jesus every day so that whatever trouble comes in our lives, we will faithfully endure by his grace. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we do, we do ask that, and we trust, really we trust that this word today will accomplish exactly what you intend it to accomplish. That it will encourage where encouragement is needed, that it will strengthen our resolve to persevere and endure, that will, it will ignite our desire to be bold witnesses and that it will strike terror in the hearts of those who do not know you and will bring them to faith and repentance. God, have your way with all of us. Have your way with me in this text. Not just us gathered in this room, but every single one of this, of us as we hear from you. We wanna be submissive to you. We wanna follow you. Give us grace to do that. We pray these things in Christ's name.